Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison, and like many of you listening, I have no medical background, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, gynecologist and CREI certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy-to-understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility, and all aspects of women's health. Welcome back to Knocked Up. Welcome, Raylia. Welcome, Geordie. I'm excited about this episode. It's a good topic, isn't it? And you know, I looked at the back catalogue and it's we haven't covered it in this sense for three years. Well, it's actually really relevant because there have been major, major changes in the last few months, let alone years, <laughs> in terms of funding. Exactly. Yes. And they come into play in November 2021, which is now. Yeah, that's right. Actually, 1st of November. So today is actually the first day that we're recording on where the changes are relevant. These exciting changes apply to preconception genetic testing. What's changed? So up until now, all preconception genetic testing of embryos, so we're talking about checking embryos for problems, was privately funded because there was literally no item number and no Medicare funding for any testing under any circumstances. And what's changed is the federal government of Australia have provided $95 million, so quite a lot of money, to help families who want to access embryo testing to avoid known genetic problems that are likely to affect their children to be able to have that test work up and also the funding of the test in IVF itself funded by Medicare and the majority of funding will now come from Medicare. So the out-of-pocket costs that patients previously bore themselves to access this amazing technology is now going to be rightly Medicare funded. So I think it's brilliant. I'm someone who's accessed this technology myself, as many listeners know, because it's on the record. You know, I've myself found out through preconception genetic screening, which we'll talk about a bit in this episode, that my own family was at risk of having a baby with cystic fibrosis and I myself have used this technology and funded it at the time, you know, more than a decade ago, um, to be able to test embryos for the condition and be able to transfer an embryo that, you know, only, well, that I knew had, had no risk of having a severe disease. So, you know, that was a major privilege to me Um, And it was something that I really valued at the time because while many, many different therapies are now available for cystic fibrosis and maybe not everyone would make that decision now for that particular condition, you know, I had as a doctor treated 
patients and seeing patients unfortunately have very difficult lives with cystic fibrosis and certainly shortened life expectancies with cystic fibrosis, um, which is still the case. And my decision was to try and have a baby that didn't have to go through that. So what we also need, I guess, to differentiate a bit for our IVF community is that there's a difference between preconception genetic screening for random aneuploidy, random chromosome errors that happen with age. So that still does not have a Medicare rebate. As we get older, we can expect to make fewer normal embryos because the ageing egg specifically, also sperm can be a source, but the ageing egg specifically is much more pressured and much less able to make a normal balanced embryo with the right number of chromosomes present. And often that issue of aneuploidy arises from an IVF perspective when the embryo is already in the lab, like when the egg is already in the lab, that's when the mistakes are happening. It's not in the body. So it's not necessarily influenced by IVF stimulation in any way. It's, it's a purely random event that happens in the embryo as it's developing. There are two major opportunities for aneuploidy to randomly arise. One is around the time of ovulation or the time of egg collection when the egg is chucking out a little polar body package of DNA and if it doesn't chuck out an even package, then a chromosome problem can arise and aneuploidy can arise. But the second opportunity for major aneuploidy and one of the major times where aneuploidy happens from a what we call meiotic point of view or point of view of the special cell divisions that the egg does is after the sperm fertilizes the egg. So it's happening in the lab. And then a further opportunity for random error to happen is as that very early single cell embryo makes its cell divisions. And that's what we call post-meiotic or mitotic aneuploidy. So lots of big words, but basically the mistakes are happening as the embryo forms and as the embryo develops. And that is random. However, there are other mistakes or DNA errors or disease-causing mutations that parents carry and they affect parents at a young age and at an older age. They affect you at every age because they're written into your DNA blueprint. And they may be errors in a particular gene that's passed through a family, but many conditions are what we call recessive. And recessive diseases are often hidden silent conditions that we carry in you know, the back pages of our DNA blueprint, but they only come to the forefront if both members of the, the couple or both sperm and egg carry the same issue. And these are things we would never know to look for unless either we pick it up on a screening test done by parents before they try to conceive, and that's called preconception genetic screening. And we've got previous episodes in our Knocked Up Back catalogue about preconception genetic screening, including one with Zoe Milgram, the founder of Eugene Labs, which is one of the platforms that I offer my patients. And just as a little plug to Eugene, you can actually order that online yourself. You don't need a doctor's referral, so you can check out their website and find out more. But also, you know, sometimes you find out by having a child with the problem. And I would say a significant proportion of my patients who come to me seeking preconception genetic testing of embryos from a condition have actually found out 
the hard way by having a baby who's either passed away from a condition or that has had significant um, life difficulties because of a condition and the parents are seeking not to pass that condition on to their child. Another category of genetic testing that is also covered by Medicare as well as single gene problems um, are chromosomal rearrangements or translocations or inversions. And a lot of the time parents present with these issues as a cause for infertility and it can be primary infertility, which is difficulty having their first child, or it can be secondary infertility, uh, whereas they've had a baby and for some reason it's been really difficult for them to have another one. And that's because their own DNA on a macro level is organised in a bit of a strange way and they are much more likely to have unbalanced embryos than the average person from a chromosome perspective because of something that they carry called a chromosomal chromosomal rearrangement. And one other way that this can sadly present is with recurrent miscarriages because quite often embryos affected with a chromosomal rearrangement that is unbalanced will try an implant but they will then cause a miscarriage. So, you know, that is another category which is now eligible for workup and application of preconception genetic testing technology to be Medicare funded. So who is valid for the funding? So anybody who carries a predestined problem that they can pass on to a child. So it could be a gene problem, a mutation in a gene that can be a dominant gene or it can be a recessive gene. So if it's a dominant gene, it might be something they carry themselves. So they have a medical condition that's been found out to be genetic. So one of my patients, for example, that I'm looking after in this category has a syndrome called Marfan syndrome. And that syndrome is associated with problems of great blood vessels and cardiac problems, as well as other problems in different connective tissues around the body. And so she wishes not to have that particular problem passed on to a child, um, you know, but I can, I can tell you there are a myriad of different conditions. There's so many of them. Um, we all carry at least five lethal genetic conditions hidden in our DNA from a recessive point of view. And then some of us have also things like neurofibromatosis um, or Marfan's uh, or fragile X carriers. We, we often do have these things that do to some degree affect us, um, but then they may also affect our children. And we have the technology to ensure that the buck stops with us and that we don't pass those things on if we don't want to. And you know, not everybody will choose this avenue. There are other avenues, but it is great that the choice will now be open to people because in the public system up until now, there was absolutely no choice. There's still no, to my knowledge, application of this new rebate in the public system. It's all pretty new, but hopefully it will eventually happen. Uh, in terms of building a genetics lab in the public system, that's a very big ask. So it's not something that's going to happen overnight at all. But, you know, when I also work at the Reproductive Services Unit at the Women's Hospital, you know, I've seen some heartbreaking cases where couples would have loved to access this technology so that they didn't have to have a difficult decision that was diagnosed in a pregnancy where they'd already lost a child from a terrible disease and they had to think about whether they were going to terminate the much-wanted pregnancy they were carrying 
that was affected by the same thing. So that's the diagnosis that was available to people who couldn't access genetic testing because of financial barriers. They could test in a pregnancy and decide whether to and decide whether to continue or terminate, um, which is a very challenging and difficult decision for many. You mentioned cystic fibrosis. What else is being tested for with these with this new funding? So you can literally test for any inherited genetic condition and many of these panels that you can do, um, which actually are still privately funded if you want to screen before you uh, do yet pregnant and if you don't have a family or personal history and you want to check to see if you are going to be a carrier for something, that is still very privately funded at the moment. That may hopefully change in the future but not currently. There are so many conditions. There's more than 500 conditions on many panels that screen couples. So there's, they're too numerous to go through them by name. But, you know, there are many, many different conditions. The College of ONG and the College of GP in Australia and New Zealand currently recommend that parents be offered screening for cystic fibrosis, which has a carrier frequency uh, in Australia of about 1 in 20. Spinal muscular atrophy, which has a carrier frequency in Australia of about 1 in 100, but babies born with SMA rarely survive um, beyond a couple of years of life. So it's really devastating to lose a child and that's why that one's included in the panel. Uh, and Fragile X, which is again relatively common, similar frequencies to SMA and also the most common inherited form of intellectual disability, particularly in boys. So those, those are three that people may have heard of because their GP or their obstetrician may have discussed it with them. But the broader panels that are available now uh, through preconception genetic screening often screen for upwards of 500 conditions relative to reproductive health all at the one time. If you're a patient, how do you go about accessing this testing? So the first step for a patient, for example, a patient at Women's Health Melbourne is to make an appointment. And what I do at a first appointment talking about preconception genetic screening of embryos or testing of embryos um, is I offer parents that broad panel of, of testing because if we know that we need to test for one condition, uh, it's important that we also explore everything that might be relevant to that couple. We look at things like ovarian reserve testing and all of the things that are important in a IVF context. And I explain the IVF process in detail and make sure that patients have satisfied necessary criteria to go through the IVF process, which in Victoria involves some counselling as well. And at the same time, in parallel, um, collaborating with a clinical geneticist, what we will do is test to work up a test for whatever the condition that they are screening for, for example, muscular dystrophy, let's just say. And we identify the gene in question. And some of the Medicare funding is for this preliminary test workup. When we biopsy an embryo, we take a tiny little bite of cells from the outer layer of the embryo, which is called the trophectoderm. And in terms of getting the test to be robust and getting the test to be accurate, we need to ensure different measures that help us get an accurate result from DNA from a tiny, tiny little amount of cells that we extract. So we look for different things. We look for the sequencing of the area and we also look for the uh, DNA blueprint around the area, the, the DNA fingerprint we call it, the carrier mapping 
fingerprint of um, fingerprint of single nucleotide poly, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs, and this is to help us know a that we've got the area that the gene is in in our sample, and b that we we know exactly how that's likely to segregate which is when the DNA mashup happens as we look for genetic diversity in embryos because it does get quite complicated. We, we do have these really cool mechanisms that help us be diverse as a species, but they also make it challenging when we're doing genetic testing on tiny samples to know which way things go um, in, a, in a DNA segregation dance as an embryo forms its unique DNA map. So we look at family studies and we say, you know, what does grandma's DNA look like? What does grandpa's DNA look like? What does siblings' DNA look like? What did mum and dad's DNA look like? And for couples that don't have the luxury of family around to do the studies, we actually use the embryos that they create themselves in an IVF cycle as that family reference library to study how things replicate. So obviously we have to make the embryos first and then we do the DNA analysis retrospectively, you know, in, in inverted commas in silico. And that gives us a lot of surety that A, the tiny little area we're looking at was in fact amplified in the sample when we photocopy the DNA in the lab to make a assessment. And it also tells us that the test that we've developed is going to be accurate for the presence of the gene and for the presence or absence of the mutation. So it's it's pretty cool technology, but it does take time. And DNA testing in our lab at Melbourne IVF that we use at Women's Health Melbourne is done in-house. We do it ourselves. We have amazing scientists. We have all the technology. We don't outsource anywhere. We don't send your DNA overseas. It's all done in Australia, secure, no worries about um, those kind of biosecurity, bioidentity issues which is amazing, but it still takes time. And, and from the time we biopsy the embryo to the time I have the genetic results for you is roughly two weeks. And that's just the time it takes to run the test, um, to amplify the DNA to run the test and to have accurate test results. And for some couples who are using their own embryos as the kind of family DNA map members, we have to have sometimes a certain number of embryos in order to interpret that data. And sometimes say, for example, we might need five embryos, but we might only create two in a cycle, for example. We might need to create further embryos before we can interpret those test results with the most robust interpretation. What are the risks to the embryo when you take the biopsy? That's a really great question because this technology is not without risk. There are two categories of risk with embryo biopsy. One is that the laser biopsy that we use to extract the cells may damage the embryo. And that's why it's really important that the biopsy is done by a very experienced scientist who's been you know, uniquely and deeply trained in this technology and who does it all the time. Uh, because just like a surgeon who does operations all the time is going to have a lower complication rate than someone who does the same operation once in a blue moon. An embryologist who's trained in biopsy, which is a form of laser surgery on a microscopic level involving an embryo, is going to have a better outcome rate from their 
embryos. And we're very lucky at Melbourne IVF to have world-class scientists in our laboratory working on our embryos. But there's also the risk of cryo injury. So because we have to freeze the embryos while we're working on the test results, we can actually lose embryos, whether they're biopsied or not, from the freeze warm process. And there's a 5% risk of losing an embryo for every embryo that we freeze and warm. That doesn't sound so bad, but if it happens to you and it happens to your embryo, it's very devastating for the person. And any IVF specialist will have had the experience of having to call a patient on the day of their proposed embryo transfer and let them know an embryo has not survived that process. So handling embryos in the lab, no doubt, in terms of the, you know, from the embryo's perspective, the trauma of biopsy, freeze and warm, um, it's not without risk. Um, But having said that, you know, for example, when you have a pregnancy and you don't know if your baby's affected by something like cystic fibrosis and you have an invasive test to find out like a chorionvillus sampling or an amniocentesis, that carries a risk of miscarriage well into a pregnancy. So parents often, you know, are counselled about managing risk and it's important to have that information and feel comfortable about it, whatever technique of diagnostic testing we choose to implement. You mentioned test development and it seems like this is a very individualised process. What is the time frame around that and what are we waiting for? So you're right, every single genetic condition and every single mutation is going to be unique to a family and for example with cystic fibrosis there are are literally thousands of mutations that can cause cystic fibrosis. What we need to know is about the individual's particular mutation and where it is on the chromosome and gene of interest. Uh, And we actually develop an individual test for each person and each couple, testing for conditions. So the test is actually individualised to the person and the test workup is done in the lab as an individualised workup for that person and their condition so that we can test their embryos with, with accuracy. There are a few exceptions to that rule. So, for example, if you've got a chromosome rearrangement, we can usually pick that up with a more standard karyo mapping test that we use um, to apply to looking for random chromosome errors because we're looking at massive chunks of DNA. But often when we're looking for single gene defects, we're just looking for one letter switch in the DNA code. So, you know, the way I explain it to patients is that, you know, when we're looking for whole chromosomes, it's like we're looking for a a missing or an extra whole volume or half a volume of the DNA encyclopedia. But when we are looking for single gene problems, we're looking for a spelling mistake on a page somewhere in the encyclopedia. If we don't know to look for that, if there's not a family history or if there's not a genetic screening test that's picked up the risk, we're not going to find it. Patients might say, oh, why wouldn't we just know to look? It's not something that's very obvious. It's something that's deeply hidden in the DNA code. It's not something that you could look at an embryo down a microscope and tell anything about. So if we don't know to look for it, we're not going to look for it and we're not going to find it. And that's why, you know, counselling parents about preconception genetic screening is the best way to find out if a couple is at risk. And people may not realise this, but most people who have a child with one of these major issues don't have a family history at all. Most of the time they don't. Most of the time it comes out of the blue, completely out of left field. 
Like when we spoke to Rachel from McKenzie's Mission, they had no idea that there was a risk of having a child born with a condition. That's right. And in that case, it was spinal muscular atrophy. No, that's right. So it takes a while. So usually when I see a patient, we organise the workup and it might take a good month or a bit, depending on how easy it is to get the family samples, the relative samples. Sometimes relatives are living overseas and we have to navigate that kind of issue about, you know, kind of getting DNA samples, saliva samples often posted from, you know, kind of far away. And that's been a massive issue in COVID as well um, with delays in post and things like that. But in general, it takes, I would say, roughly a month to design the tests and make sure it's robust. And then we can often use that time to also get ready for IVF. And then we move forward subsequently once the couple is ready and the test is ready. And quite often, you know, not always, I mean, it is, it is possible to have a double whammy. You can carry a genetic condition and have an underlying infertility problem. And that makes life a lot harder if you have a low egg count or if you have advanced age. So you've also got a lot of random errors in your embryos as well as the inherited errors or you might have a genetic problem and have endometriosis or you might have a genetic problem and have male factor infertility. But many couples who present for preconception genetic screening and that's what brings them to IVF are not infertile. And if that's the case, they've got regular cycles, they've got a great egg count, they can use the safest IVF regimens to try and get a lot of eggs in one go without any risk of hyperstimulation syndrome to speak of, then they're a great prognosis couple for IVF success. And, you know, often it's about just finding those embryos that are going to be safe and transferring those embryos, which may be carriers like the parents or they might be uh, completely unaffected, but ensuring that they don't have a high risk of having a serious illness that might cause a child a shorter life expectancy or cause a child uh, a major impact on their life from a serious disease that gives them a a much lower predicted quality of life. And, And those are the kind of conditions that we're looking for and we're we're never going to be picking you know babies based on eye color hair color sporting prowess intellectual ability that's not what this is about it's not about designer babies it's about making sure that couples at risk of having a child with a serious illness can do their best to give their children their best start in life and the opportunities that most other children will have naturally Thank you, Raylia. I'll leave some links in the show notes for people to listen to previous episodes we've done and also to some documentation about these changes. To support Knocked Up, leave us a review or recommend to a friend. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and join Raylia at Dr. Raylia Lou. And email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. 